0: Not only is the resurrection important because it is a declaration of who Jesus is, what makes our faith different from all the other faiths of the world, and all the other faiths of the world, therefore false faiths, is because Jesus is alive.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogie, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Romans, and we're nearing the end of chapter eight. There's a considerable amount of doctrine in this chapter, and earlier this week we began looking at the eternal security of the believer. As we begin part two of a message entitled More Than Conquerors, Pastor Brogy emphasizes the uniqueness and significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ.
0: I wanna invite you this morning to take a Bible and turn to the book of Romans chapter eight. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way through Romans, and this is the eighth message just here in the eighth chapter. But the final message, a chapter that has been indeed moving and has stirred many of our lives, my own included, a chapter that began with the words, no condemnation and ends with the words, no separation in an ocean of truth between those two points. And so as you read these last 12 verses of this section of Scripture, you can feel Paul's excitement. You can just sense this man is gripped by the words that he is writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We have completed most of these 12 verses. We're going to look at just a handful, but to give us a flow into the context, I want to begin reading this morning in verse 28 of Romans chapter 8. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called, and these whom He called, He also justified, and these whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me walk us into the context of our passage. We noted in verses 28 to 30 that God is working all things together for good. The Bible is very clear. It's a restricted promise. It's a promise that God gives to those who are qualified as loving God, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And we noted that The word call actually is not a verb. It falls in the noun family. It's an adjective. The King James adds the article because it's implied. He's speaking of the called ones. He's speaking of a specific group of people that God has set apart for a purpose. And that purpose is to make us like God's son. And so we studied God's golden chain of salvation that began with God's foreknowing us all the way through the fifth link that God has glorified us. And there's no leakage in that chain whatsoever. Each one is in a past tense. It indicates that something has already been done and determined in the mind and heart of God. You have the last two letters of the word glorified, the fifth link in the chain, hopefully circled. It's not something God will do. It is something He will do experientially when the Lord Jesus will come from heaven. And in the twinkling of an eye, he will transform us into likeness, the likeness that he, is, he himself has. But in God's mind, positionally, we have already been glorified. All, without exception, whom God foreknew, he has glorified. It is as good as done in the mind of heart of God. And that becomes the basis for our eternal security. We discussed last time that there are some people who say they are assured of their salvation... But they don't know whether or not they are eternally secure, that once they are saved, that they are saved forever. They don't doubt whether or not they're saved, they just doubt whether or not they can stay saved. You say, well, is doubt good? No, it's bad. Doubt is to the spirit what pain is to the body. If you have pain in the body, it doesn't mean you're dead, it means you're alive, you can still feel it, but there's an indicator that something is wrong. Well, when there's doubt in the human spirit over your eternal security, that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. That means you're sick spiritually and God wants to fix that. Now he doesn't want to give you a false assurance. And there are many people, Jesus said, who claim to know him, who say they are born again. And in the final judgment, they will hear the words, I never knew you. But if you do know him, He wants you to know how secure you are in Jesus Christ. So you can see the title of this morning's sermon is More Than Conquerors. This is the second part of that sermon. In verses 31 to 39, we began to study it last time, Paul makes five declarations that help you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when God saves you, He saves you forever. Let me just briefly review the first three. First declaration, there is no effective opposition against the child of God. There's no effective opposition against God's children. He opens with a question, what shall we say to these things? What things? The things he's just mentioned in verses 28 to 30. That God is working everything together for good, all the way from his foreknowledge to our being glorified. And so he wants us to know that from eternity past to eternity future, we are secure. And so now he asks, well, what else can we say? And to answer his own question, he asks five more questions that, again, speak of how secure we are in Christ. And to understand the significance of each of these questions, you need to know why it is that he doesn't answer these questions. And the reason he doesn't answer the questions that he asks is because there's an implied answer to each and every one. Each question, in essence, is a declaration of who we are in Jesus Christ. And so notice the first question serves as an introduction. He says, if God is for us, who is against us? Practically speaking, no one. There is no effective opposition against the child of God. If God is for us, for someone to be against you, they have to be stronger than God. And no one is stronger than God. No one can thwart God's purposes. No one can take on God. That's the first declaration we studied. There is no effective opposition. Secondly, declaration number two, there's no potential deprivation against the child of God. He says here in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And of course, the implied answer is he will. Paul is effectively asking, how do we know that God is for us? What is the proof that God is on our side? And of course, the answer is is the giving of His Son. He just simply points us to the cross. How can I know that God will give me everything pertaining to life and godliness? The demonstration of the love of God at the cross. He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? So there is no deprivation against the child of God. We saw the abuse of that verse by the modern-day prosperity theologians that totally tear it out of its context. All things that he is speaking of are the blessings of ours in salvation and the security that it brings. We saw it's an a fortiori argument or a fortiori, depending on how you want to pronounce it, whether you live in Britain or the United States. You'll hear both. An a fortiori argument is a greater to lesser argument. And we've seen Paul do this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's divine logic where God in essence says, if I can do this greater thing, then certainly I can do this easier thing. If I as God can save you while you are a helpless, ungodly, wicked, wretch, and enemy, as God describes us in the fifth chapter, well, now that you are one of my children, I can certainly secure you for all of eternity. Okay, that brings us to the third of five declarations. Declaration number three, there is no viable accusation against the child of God. No viable accusation. Notice verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is qualified to bring a charge against the child of God? Who can possibly accuse the true Christian? Again, there are many voices, and if indeed that phrase stood all by itself, then you could easily justify charges brought against God's people. Our conscience sometimes accuses us. Revelation 12.10 says the devil accuses us before the throne of God. There are many unbelievers, especially who point the finger at Christians, but none of their accusations can stand. Why? Because, he says, God is the one who justifies The supreme judge of the supreme court of the universe has justified us. He has declared us righteous. We saw in our study of justification that it does not mean that he has made us righteous. He is going to make you righteous someday in your glorification completely. And right now he is making you righteous in the process of sanctification, where he shapes you and conforms you to the image of his son. But at salvation, you are initially declared righteous. We are called hagaoi, holy ones, saints, you could translate it. We are holy ones in the sight of God. It speaks of our position that we have in Jesus Christ. And no person, no church, no tradition, not even the Christian himself can nullify what God has done. When we speak to people about salvation, we don't say, well, would you like to hear about the gift of temporary life? We don't say, do you want to hear about eternal insecurity? No, we're speaking about something that is forever. There's no effective opposition. There's no potential deprivation because God gave His own Son. He's going to meet all of our spiritual needs. There's no viable accusation because no one can bring a charge against God's elect. Now, Declaration 4, we're plowing new ground. There in your note-taking outline, there is no feasible condemnation. No feasible condemnation against the child of God. Look now, if you will, at verse 34 in your Bible. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Notice how verse 34 begins with a question. Who is the one who condemns? And again, in answer to that question, you could say many. Men often condemn other men because it makes them feel better about their sin. And so this week, there are some national leaders railing against evangelical Christians for our stance, not against homosexual people, but against the sin of homosexuality. It makes them feel better to say that we're wrong and they're right, but God has spoken and He has not stuttered. Our heart sometimes condemns us. Again, uh, the devil, habitually before the throne of God, brings accusations against God's elect. But listen, God ultimately is the one and only the one who can bring condemnation on a person. And the supreme judge of the supreme court of the universe has justified the child of God, and he's entrusted that judgment to Jesus Christ. God has given all judgment to the Son in John 5, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. That means if you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ, you will, if you die or he comes back before this sermon is over, you will meet Jesus Christ not in his love, but you will meet him in his wrath. You will meet him as your judge. But if you know Christ, then you are indeed secure because the very things that condemn you, he bore in his own body on the cross. Peter said, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds, you are healed, you are saved. And so the chapter opened, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that little word now emphasizes that I don't have to wait for some final judgment to see whether or not God will receive me. Most people, the average unsaved person, puts the judgment of God way out there in the future where God's going to weigh the good and bad and make a final determination. That's not what the Bible teaches. The moment your heart stops beating for the last time, you're either in heaven or you are in hell, Hades. And when God empties out Hades at the end of the age and all those who are in Hades are put before the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, 11 to 15, it's not to determine if you're going to the lake of fire. It's a matter of how in the perfect righteousness of God every unbeliever will go to the lake of fire. So Christ Jesus is He who died, who is for us, who is raised, Notice what it says further here in verse 34. Christ Jesus, he was died, yes, rather who was raised. After Jesus died, he was raised to life. Now, you cannot dissect up the Trinity. I mean, you can try to, but you would be in error to do so. The Bible teaches that God is one. Here, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. We worship one God who exists in three persons, three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And as we've seen many times in our study of Scripture, sometimes a given act is attributed to each member of the Godhead. So for instance, in the giving of spiritual gifts, if I asked you which member of the Trinity gave spiritual gifts, most of us would initially say the Spirit. And that's true because His ministry is highlighted in the giving of gifts. But when we come to Romans 12, we're going to see God the Father gives spiritual gifts. In Ephesians chapter 4, he's going to say, God the Son gives spiritual gifts. When you think of the creation of the world, you'd say, well, who created the world? Barashiparai Elohim, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You say, the Father did. And yet, the same chapter of Scripture teaches that the Spirit, as Job teaches, was involved in the creation of the world. And the New Testament highlights Christ as being the creator. Every member is involved. Who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. Well, Jesus said in John 10, no one is going to take my life. I will give it. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. He raised himself from the dead. There in John chapter 2, he cleanses, if you remember, the temple twice. Once in the beginning of his ministry and one in the final week of his ministry. And there in John 2, when he cleanses the temple, he says, destroy this temple And in three days, I will raise it up. So he raises himself in one sense. Even God the Holy Spirit is involved in the resurrection as we studied in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 that Jesus was raised, how? According to the spirit of holiness. And so while both the Son and the Spirit are involved, ultimately God the Father is given credit for the resurrection. And there are many, many passages we could highlight. Peter, when he preaches on the day of Pentecost, he says that Jesus was delivered up or delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross, you Jewish brethren, by the hands of godless men, the Roman soldiers, and put him, Christ, to death, but God raised him up. At the end of his sermon, he will say, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. He gives a second sermon a short time later. It's recorded in Acts 3. And there he says that you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. A fact that we are witnesses. And so here, Paul is highlighting the reality that God the Father is involved in the resurrection. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, he who was raised. And that statement is significant because God the Father, by the Son, through the agency of the Spirit, basically says, I accept what my son did. Not only is the resurrection important because it is a declaration of who Jesus is, what makes our faith different from all the other faiths of the world and all the other faiths of the world, therefore false faiths, is because Jesus is alive. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. All the great religious leaders of the world are dead, but Jesus is alive. It's one of the best demonstrated facts of history. It's central to the preaching of the Bible because crucifixion was not unique, but resurrection was. Yes, there were some individuals who were raised out of death back into a natural body, but Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first ever to come out of the grave, and every calendar marks that historical event as B.C., before Christ, and Anno Domini in the year of the Lord. But not only is it a declaration that he is Lord, but as we studied in Romans 4, it is an affirmation that God the Father approved the payment that Jesus Christ made on the cross. Read further here into verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Not only did Christ die for us, not only was He raised for us, but He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and He's interceding for us. Some years ago, one of the themes of our vacation Bible school was the tabernacle. And our children built a tabernacle. Uh, not this one. This is an actual reproduction, uh, perfectly reproduced based on what the Scripture says. You can visit it out in the desert of Israel, some of the very places that the Jewish people wandered for 40 years. And when our children studied the tabernacle, which is, of course, a predecessor to the temple, which was a more permanent structure, one of the things that immediately strikes you is that there's no seats in it, no chairs. No place for the high priest to sit down. When he went into that sacred section of the tent to make a sacrifice, he never sat down. And in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, it says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Messiah, the Lord Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of the Father. It's done. It's a completed work. There's nothing else left to do. And so not only was He raised, affirming that His payment was accepted, not only is He sat down showing and demonstrating that it was finished, but He intercedes for you. He prays for you. He prays for the needs that you have, for the strength that we need, but He also is our advocate with the Father. When we are accused falsely by the diabolus, the devil, Jesus intercedes for us. So do you think the Lord Jesus, Judge Jesus, is going to condemn you? The one to whom all judgment was given? The one who died? The one who was raised? The one who ascended? The one who's seated? The one who's interceding for you? No, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that brings us to the fifth declaration. Declaration number five, there is no imaginable separation against the child of God. No imaginable separation. Notice the fifth question here beginning in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now the devil would have you to believe that you can be separated from the love of Christ. He has convinced many a Christian with a false doctrine that you can lose your salvation. The devil would have you to believe that there are grounds by which you can be opposed. There are grounds by which you can be accused. That there are grounds by which you can be condemned. The devil would have you to believe that somehow God is not going to meet all of your needs. That somehow you can be separated from the love of God. And so in this final paragraph here in Romans 8... Paul asks questions to underscore the persistent, steadfast, eternal, unchanging love of God in Jesus Christ. And that's what verses 35 to 39 is anticipating. Paul, as we've seen throughout this letter, will anticipate objections that people will have. And so he's thinking of his audience. And some people would say, well, Paul, listen. Sometimes life is very, very difficult as a Christian. Are these not at times evidences that God has abandoned us, that God has forgotten us? And so Paul asks here in verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And he asks actually a series of questions to follow. And each one is actually a question, but we make it kind of one big question. Will tribulation, no tribulation, cannot separate you from the love of Christ? Now, some of your translations say trouble. The King James and the New American Standard says tribulation, and that's important, and I think that is very helpful, because sometimes in English, as we studied in the fifth chapter of Romans, we kind of put together trials and tribulations. We talk about the trials and tribulations of life, and while it is true that all tribulations are trials, and therefore we ought to count them as joy... Not all trials are tribulations. Tribulations are a subset of trials, and it is used specifically in the Scripture to describe pressure or opposition of an unbelieving world on the child of God. It is a technical term used to describe severe suffering that Christians can experience in this life. Jesus warned that when we come to the end of the age, In Matthew 13, in the Olivet Discourse, he said, for those days will be a time of tribulation. Philipsis, same word, such as has never occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. The Apostle John in Revelation 7, when he's describing the martyred dead who came out of the great tribulation period, he said, these are the ones... Who come out of the great tribulation, Philipsis, same word, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Uh, it was used in secular context, this word, in the first century to take a heavy sled and to roll it over the wheat that had been harvested to separate the chaff from the straw, the heads of grain from the chaff. In Latin, in the 4th century Latin translation, this word tribulation is translated tribulum. And so it comes into English as tribulation. It speaks of those crushing blows in life. Sometimes we say in the physical realm, I feel like a truck ran over me. Well, in the spiritual realm, sometimes people feel crushed by the blows of life. And that's part of being a Christian. That's why Paul warned those new believers there in Lystra, Through many tribulations, same word, we must enter the kingdom of God. But tribulation cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Jesus said there in that upper room, in the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And so that heartless pressure that an unbelieving world brings upon the Christian cannot separate us from the love of God. So just just cross that off your list. What is the next item on the list? Well, how about distress? You say, well, help me to wrap my mind around the word distress. Just take the first two letters off, D-I, and write the word stress, and you have a good essence of what the Greek New Testament is trying to communicate. It's actually a compound word in Greek, two words brought together. The first word means a narrow place, like going through a narrow pass in a mountain, and the second word means to press. And so the idea brought together is to confine or to press through a narrow place. And sometimes we have stresses in this life that seem to box us in. Some of you have a job and you think it's a dead end and you're stressed by it. Some of you are stressed by the fact that you have no job. Sometimes you feel squeezed by health problems, by financial obstacles, by family issues that you're walking through, and you feel boxed in in the daily ground, and your space feels very, very narrow.
1: No, not any kind of trouble or distress or anything else can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. And we'll look at that further tomorrow when we continue our message, More Than Conquerors. If you'd like to listen again to it in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app with Dr. Carl Brogy, available from the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. You can also listen on our website, searchthescriptures.org, or call us at 877-787-7478 and request a CD or DVD copy of program number ROM42. Join us again tomorrow as we continue part two of our study, More Than Conquerors, and Search the Scriptures.